Hi. Hi, Jen. How are you? Uh, good. I'm excited. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I'm calling so we can discuss Maggie Haberman on the show this week. So I've come to know Maggie as the New York Times White House reporter, but I believe you knew her back when she was at the New York Post as their city hall reporter and at Politico for a little bit. Born and bred New Yorker and now a mom of three still living in New York. And for anyone who's ever been on Twitter, they would know that she gets some pretty brutal attacks on there because of the way she covers Trump and the way the New York Times covered Hillary Clinton in 2016, which is obviously personal to you. So any thoughts heading into it? I mean, I don't even know where to start. I just, you know, this is, it's funny because um, there's probably not a journalist I respect more. And then on the other side is there's not a journalist I know who draws more ire than Maggie. There's like a lot to unpack here. I'll be searching Twitter for all of the things that people say about her, which is very scary to think about. Because, you know, people continue to tweet at me about something nice I said about her over a year ago. I have almost a thousand responses and they continue to, wow. Yeah. Continue to roll in to this day from over a year ago. Cause I said something nice about her. So yeah. Is there anything else you um, are thinking about asking her? Um, one conversation I've never had um, with Maggie is just like her view of, of uh, like being a woman in this business you know, what she thought her place as a woman was, what she had to felt like she had to do to fit in in the early days of her career in particular and how that's changed. You don't get to hear about her talk about herself so often, so it should be interesting. Right, right. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Maggie Haberman, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for being on. Jen, thanks for having me. I know that when you do interviews, people always want you to talk about Trump. Um, so we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and normally we sort of end the show with talking about Twitter because I ask people on Twitter, you know, I'm talking to so-and-so today and do you have questions for this person? Um, but the the Twitter responses about you are just so bonkers that I had to start with it. Um when the New York Magazine did a story about you a while ago, right? Like over a, a year ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. I tweeted about that, just said, this is what I said. Lord knows I've had beef with the New York Times. Something you and I will never agree on. But like I have a lot of beef with the New York Times and like email coverage from 16. Um, but Lord knows I've had beef with the New York Times. Maggie um, Haberman is one of the best, most perceptive, thorough journalists I've ever worked with. Um, nice people are still responding to that tweet like over a year later. There's almost a thousand responses and they're and, and they are still uh, replying to that to say that I am being disloyal to Hillary Clinton, that I n- am not a truly leftist, that I want access to you. And that's um, <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know. I know. And then today when I tweeted, say, hey, I'm talking to Maggie Haberman. Um, let me know your questions and I'm going to brace for your responses because I knew that was going to be a controversial thing to do. And people were attacking me for talking to you, again, as if that meant I was somehow disloyal to Hillary. And I, I noted, you know, Maggie actually didn't cover Hillary um, in 2016. You know, you were signed to Trump, the Trump campaign. And, you know, still I got these responses that I was being, uh, you know, it's being disloyal. And I, and I don't want to dismiss those people's concerns. I understand that they are sincere. But what I can tell people is, you know, no one smarts more over Hillary's loss than me. Um, 
I've been very critical of the Times. I do think that they uh, grossly fell into the trap of false equivalency, where if they wrote a bad story about Trump, they thought they had to write a bad story about Clinton. And, you know, moreover, they led the charge on emails, which was remarkably irresponsibly covered. And I will go to my death feeling (laughs) this way. But I have so much respect for you as a journalist. And there's really good reasons why. And I thought we could sort of illuminate for people what the relationship between the reporter and the people they cover is really like. And, you know, maybe shed some light on this. Well, A, thank you very much for having me. I mean, can I can I yeah, please. Just thank you for that. Thank you for yeah. inviting me. Um, thank you for uh, hoping that we can have a thoughtful conversation. I, I just want to be clear. I'm not in any way dismissive of people's um, frustrations with the paper. I, I think that part of what comes with what the New York Times is, is we have to recognize and take seriously people's criticisms. And I think often, and I think I have not intentionally been a part of this, but I have sometimes been a part of this, not... Uh, made clear that I am receptive to criticism. I think the the Times in particular gets very knee-jerk defense of of its own uh, its own stuff, of its own of its own coverage. Um, and so I think that uh, it behooves everyone to to listen to legitimate concerns. I just don't understand why it is that everybody holds me accountable for all of my male counterparts' work. Um, I'm going to talk about like what people mean when they say access journalism and um, what I think actually goes on, because I do think it is sort of would be illuminating for people. I I think when I hear access journalism, I I think that people think that means that in order to get access to the people you cover, you make deals to write a story a certain way in exchange for getting the access and that it results in undue favorable coverage for Trump. And I think this is particularly mm-hmm. pernicious with uh, with Trump coverage because they are sort of walled off and we don't really know that much about like that. That White House is very untransparent. And so when we do see stories with your byline that appear in The Times the, with tons I, of detail, yeah, yeah. right? I think that Mm-hmm. draws people to think mm-hmm. if they're telling her things that I don't know, she must be, they must be giving it to her with some kind of, you know, strings attached. So, and to be clear, my yeah was not agreeing with your characterization. I'm just saying, yes, I understand that that's what people think. Yeah. Right. So I think there's two things. I think there's a perception that I, I confess to not understanding that we only cover what we are allowed by the administration to cover um, as opposed to we go out and we get this information and the gigantic chunks, I would say the vast majority of things that we publish are are things that we went out to go find. I mean, look, I've talked about this when I get asked the question of why do, you know, Trump officials talk um, going back to 2017, because the types of things that we were hearing from people were unusual. But this is obviously a very unusual presidency. And what I would say then, and it's it's still it's still true, it's just a little different in the passage of time, is, you know, for a lot of these folks who had never been around Trump before, this was like it's like it was like therapy. It was like they were calling basically because they couldn't really understand what they were seeing, um, and so they would just sort of talk to, I guess, to figure things out in their own heads. Um, but, you know, there were people who were disturbed by 
some of what they were seeing in 2017 and, and 18 and 19 and 20, and that would be why they would share things. I think people, to your point, have all kinds of different motivations for talking, but our concern is about their motivation to the extent that are they telling us the truth? That's our concern. Our concern is, is the information accurate and is it newsworthy? One woman had a thoughtful uh, tweet when I said I was going to be talking to you. That's um, a good place to ground this uh, particular question in. Sally McCarty, uh, who said, serious question, because of a viral photo of her, Maggie, standing with Trump, each with big smiles on their faces, and some stories she's written that seem to treat Trump too gently, some think she's biased. Does she honestly believe she's able to cover presidential politics objectively? I do. And I, that is a thoughtful question. And how do you just and then how do you define objective? This sure. Really so hard. Let me first answer the question about the picture. Um, and then I will answer the broader question. Um, first of all, I have a picture of myself with President Obama and Mrs. Obama smiling, too, actually. I have been in pictures with Hillary Clinton. I have been in pictures when I was covering City Hall and Rudy Giuliani was mayor with him. Pictures with Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor. There is a used to be a tradition of a White House Christmas party with reporters every year. And every reporter who pretty much who was invited to those parties, whether the president was Bush or Clinton or Obama, President Trump ended that tradition, but uh, would would stand for a picture with them. So right. that particular picture he had wanted to take, he at the last minute threw his arm around me, which sort of surprised me, um, which accounts for the look on my face. And the reason that that picture was tweeted out was by Mike Schmidt, my colleague, in response to Trump trying to denigrate my reporting about something on Twitter and saying he right. didn't know me. And Mike had the reflexive reaction that reporters often have, which is, you're saying something that isn't true. We're going to show that it is true. You know, yes, you do know her. So Mike tweeted it. In retrospect, it was a huge mistake um, because without that context, nobody understands what that is. So I totally get that. And I totally get why people think that that picture is something other than what it is. But that that is actually the story of that picture. Um, in terms of objectively, yes, I, I think I've been extremely objective in my reporting. I think I was objective in my reporting about Hillary Clinton. I was objective in my reporting about um, about Donald Trump. And I, I continue to be. There's a difference between whether the reporter is objective and whether the set of facts is just a bad fact set for the candidate. And I think that more often than not, if you are Donald Trump, his perspective is that the coverage is overwhelmingly negative. I don't share that view. I think we're covering what's in front of us. Um, but I think that everybody is very, not everybody, but I think a lot of people are very disoriented by the last four years for a variety of reasons. Right. And so I think some of that disorientation factors into uh, tea leaf reading about about me and, and Trump and the White House. Yeah, I think that what concerns me when reporters talk about being objective is I, I fear that some that drives them to uh, both uh, like both sidesism, right? Like false equivalency, you know. And this is like one of the criticisms that I had of the Times um, in 2016. Uh, you know, if you do a bad story about Trump, you feel the obligation to do a bad story about Hillary, and would equate his very unconventional um, race baiting with you know having a private email server. How do you describe, how would you describe fairness? I think, from my perspective, and I think that it's, I think you just raised an important distinction because I think the distinction of the people who are being covered is not always the same as the people who are doing the covering in terms of, in terms of fairness and in terms of objectivity. Um, I describe fairness as 
people feel like they had an opportunity to respond to what will be in the piece and that the piece is fully contextualized. You know, look, my instinct is to give people uh, a hearing. Now, that doesn't always affect what the piece is going to say, ultimately, because if the hearing is false or if the hearing is uncompelling or if the hearing contradicts other, you know, information we have. I mean, one of the complications of covering this White House is that, Mm. and it was the complication of the 2016 campaign, is there are so many people who are not telling the truth. And there are so many people who are, to your point about the reason why people share information, there were often people who were, you know, revealing some piece of information to harm some other staff member. The rival gangs on this campaign was was astonishing. Um, So... So just because just because you're able to report that a Trump source told you X doesn't mean that Donald Trump wants that in the New York Times. I think that that's like, yeah, okay, correct. And I think that that's I think that's important. I don't know how many different ways I can say it where people will believe it. But that is that is, in fact, the case. I think some of the anger that gets vented on journalists is um, because people are angry at the reality that's in front of them as opposed to what the journalists are doing. And I think maybe the problem is, and I experienced this in my own life with my husband, which is like, he'll read something in the New York Times and he'll say, no one's talking about X. And I'll say, well, how did, you know, some big, you know, terrible thing that Trump did. How do you know about it? I'm like, well, how do you know about it? He's like, well, I read about in the Times. And I was like, well, okay. (laughs) So, and I think, and this may be where you differ from other journalists. I suspect that people read a story about something Trump did that you wrote and they find his actions outrageous and you don't characterize them as such. And I look at that and I say, okay, reader, you read the story and it drove you to be outraged. Why do you need the reporter to be outraged too? I think what's unsatisfying for people is they want you to say, and that's outrageous. But they want, they actually want more than that, I think, Jen. And I agree with you that I think that's what they want. But they want what comes next after that, which is, and then what would you do about it? And if people do not like Donald Trump, they have the option of voting, which they had the option of doing last time, too. Yeah. And and why don't you? Why don't you want, I mean, you, you write a story, you lay out facts, they're, you know, um, you know they're going against norms that presidents normally do. Why do you not want to take the next step and make that conclusion, make a judgment on it? Why do you resist doing that? So I think that a lot of I I think even I I think there's a problem with the premise of that question. And I say that respectfully, which is as if I run the New York Times. I don't run the New York Times. We have editors and I'm a news reporter. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't editors? I mean, why don't they? They just don't feel like that's their job. Because I think that editors think that I. I think traditionally uh, that has not been how news stories go. And I think that it has been an adjustment for a lot of newsrooms, my own included, to grapple with covering somebody who frequently lies, tells falsehoods, distorts things. And I think that newsrooms have not always successfully met that challenge. But I think that newsrooms are trying much harder than folks on Twitter want to give newsrooms credit for. And that's that's where I get frustrated. But then at the same time, what I hate, and I don't know what to do about it, but what I hate is the fact that you don't draw a conclusion contributes to the cynicism of your own motivations, which just adds to, you know, cynicism and distrust overall, right? And so, like, that's where I'm not sure that the the editors, the nameless, faceless editors, 
are making the right conclusion. I can't say I have the right answer, but you know, that's what I... So I guess here's what I would say in response to that. Um, Certainly on Twitter and in interviews, I'm pretty pointed and blunt about the president and his behavior, and I have been consistently since uh, the 2016 campaign, um, when my colleague Pat Healy and I did the first story really analyzing the demagoguery of his language, uh, and we did that at the end of 2015. that isn't what people want, is my conclusion, because I do that, and they still say, no, you're not doing it. <laughs> oh, I've experienced this dynamic in many forms. I think that people have a tremendous amount of unease with Donald Trump, and I think that people have a level of historic anger, and I'm not saying that mm-hmm. as a pejorative at all. Yep. I think they have a, a level of historic anger with the Times in general in terms of yep. Clinton coverage, and I think that those two things have collided pretty violently, um, at least on social media uh, and and elsewhere. But I think that there has been incredible journalism over the last four years. There have also been journalistic failures over mm-hmm. the last four years. I think that to your point at the start of this question, there's two things. There's the information people know because we have revealed it. And that is, as I said, almost always stuff that they would rather not have known, that the administration would rather not have known, um, have been known. And and then there's just Donald Trump's behavior in front of you. Um, you need me to tell you, reader, that that him tweeting the way he's tweeting at the FBI director isn't normal? Yeah. You, you can't figure that out? That That feels to me like something that people can probably arrive at on their own. And I don't understand entirely. I'm, I really don't understand. I'm, I'm genuinely asking. Yeah. Is it because they think our job is to convince readers of something? Mm-hmm. or Because that's that really isn't our, our role. Our role is to provide the information. Our news reporters. Yeah. There's columnists who can draw conclusions and say all right. that. Even, even I guess my, my only thing, Jen, that I, I say all the time with this is that it, there will be an era where where Donald Trump is not the president anymore right. at some point, whether it's in six months or or four and a half years. And if journalism is forever altered, you know, I, I don't, there's going to be, there's a big question of what goes back to being the way it was before Trump and what doesn't. And I think, and it's not just yeah. about journalism, no. it's across the board. No, not at all. But so I think that that is something that newsrooms are struggling with that I think is more elemental than just, you know, this particular moment in time. That's all. Stick around, and we'll be right back with journalist Maggie Haberman. Okay, so we're back, and I'm talking to New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman. One thought I have had about journalists in general why people can feel uneasy about them is not saying what you think, not drawing a conclusion, makes it seem as if you're hiding something. And I think that probably hits you harder because that hits women harder. Or if it's like you cover Trump a lot, so part of the ire is because that's your subject matter. But even when you write with male colleagues, you draw a lot more fire than they do. What have you thought that's about? It's funny. When I was coming up in reporting, I started out at the New York Post, and then I was at the Daily News in New York, and then the Post again, and then I went to Politico, and then the Times. And 
I really was not particularly aware of being treated differently inside the newsroom or viewed differently outside the newsroom when I was at the Post because I was a woman. I am extremely cognizant of it now um, because the level of criticism that I get is um, is more intense than my male colleagues. Just factually, it just is objectively. Yeah, um, it's measurably more intense. Yeah, you would think that the Hillary email server was broken by me. It was broken by Mike Schmidt, but. Um, you almost never see somebody say that on yeah. Twitter. It's interesting to me that you say when you first started off in your career, you did not feel like you were treated any differently. I didn't either. I mean, I came into my career thinking the women's right movement was something in the past and that that there was a question about whether women were equal to men. That question had been resolved and it took, you know, there were some implementation. There's implementation lag, right? Um, right? I expected that I would have to work harder than my male colleagues probably, but eventually women would all get the same kind of success that men had. I thought that's the track that we mm-hmm. were on. I myself bought into a lot of the biases. Like um, I would try to be supportive of other women, but at the same time I thought, ooh, she could replace me. She might outshine me. You know, I sort of had the notion that there was only so much success for, you know, you know, women, that that was sort of a finite resource. There wasn't like a lot of that to go around. I think it was for me, it's just more, um, I mean, it's a couple of things. I, uh, uh, I was the only woman on our team in 2016 who had mm. kids. And, um, and it was complicated because it affected it affected my travel. It affected you know a lot of things. Um, I have generally been aware over the years and over many many years now. I just think that men in newsrooms are able to yell and yep. and get angry in ways that if a woman does that, the woman is crazy mm-hmm. or difficult or aggressive. There's or a lot something. of yelling in um, newsrooms too. <laughs> <laughs> is that really? Um, I did not know that. I just think that there is, I think there is a, a phenomenon that um, Kara Swisher talks about, and I hope she won't get annoyed at me for talking about this, but right. um, but she's a friend. And, uh, and she talks about the sort of the good girl phenomenon where women try to sort of work themselves into the smallest, this is actually a line from Billions, but a, the smallest, most unobtrusive version of themselves um, it was not being said about a woman. It was being said mm-hmm. about a, a male character. But it's but it's I, I think about that line a lot because I do think that that is something that women in, in sure, every industry. Um, but yeah, but certainly in news get into of don't make waves, don't make noise, don't um, don't don't acknowledge that sexism exists. Um, you know, it. uh it does, and I think that, and I think a lot of men are not even aware of it, but um, consciously. But and it could it be does. that you know, I wonder if the change for you and how you felt that you were scrutinized is once you became the big reporter, right? I think there's something to that, and I mean, I think there's just again, I was a reporter for a very long time before Donald Trump yes. became president, but he turns everyone around him into some member of the cast in his movie, and so everyone gets well-known in some way or another. And that, that is one of the weirder phenomenons. But I do think that the more visible that women get or the more prominent women get, the more they become targets. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think, I mean, it's like, I don't think that it's unsolvable or that it's because the whole world wants to hold women back. I think that it just doesn't, 
equate with how we've traditionally viewed women. And that sounds very dated to say in 2020, but I just see evidence of it all the time. I think maybe, you know, it's part of the reason I think, um, you know, like you're a mother, Maggie, you should be harder on Trump because you should be concerned as a mother about, I'm going to say it, the deplorable treatment of children at the border. You know, like I, I think that that, there's some element of like women should hold him to a higher standard to that like eats at people because they expect we expect more humanity from women. I have a job to do and I would like to think that I'm doing it the same as my male counterparts. And in fact, I am, but my male counterparts don't get. But did you think when you started work that women, did you expect that you were going to be treated the same as men? Did you feel like we were done? And has that changed for you at all? It's a really good question. Um, I think about it the same way that I think about people who say without any self-awareness that racism ended when President Obama was elected. But, you know, I wasn't particularly conscious of it. Um, I went to a largely female college. Um, I have a very strong mom. Um, I have a, a mother who I owe, you know, a lot of my sense of being a mom and being a working mom too. She was a, uh, for the most part, a single mom. My my father did not live in the same country as us when I was growing up. And so I didn't really think about it that much. Um, and when I was reporting at the Post, it was a, it was a pretty female newsroom. There were only two female editors, so two mm-hmm. women editors on the, on the city desk, but they were amazing to learn from. And one of them was one of my mentors. Um, As long as you could get the job done and deliver at the end of the day, that was the standard by which you were judged, Um, at least at the tabloids in in New York in the 90s. It was when I started covering national politics Mm -hmm. and became a mother that I became more aware of it. But prior to that, I I didn't even think about where we done. I didn't think about it, Um, which is not a great thing to say, but it is the truth. Just, yeah, it wasn't really part of my field of vision either. But that, you know, the uh, Showtime's Fourth Estate about the documentary about New York Times coverage, it's like mm-hmm. they, and I think you've talked about this, like not loving uh, how you were depicted, but sort of the drama for you was that you're a workhorse, but it was like a distracted mom, you know, trying to raise three kids in New York City, making trips back and forth to DC for your job. And it made it seem as if that's the like first of all only your responsibility in your in your family but also that um one of the women that can't say no you know doesn't know how to prioritize between the two things of like work and family uh which seemed like a very unfair depiction but how did you like how did you see it see it that it was like very trite yeah i mean i you know, I was, there are parts of that. First of all, I think the filmmakers did a really, I, I think they did a really good job. And I think they tried mm-hmm. um, very hard to get what we do right. I think that it was inevitable that if, you know, look, they showed some of my male colleagues, you know, had them into their homes, which I would not do. And some of their children were on camera, which I personally wouldn't do. But um, yeah, there was a lot of my work-life balance that there was not for other people. And I didn't, love that just because um <laughs> I didn't love it because the last uh four years have been incredibly difficult in terms yeah. of balancing my kids and this job and I have not always gotten the balance right and I am not proud of that um but it's a hard thing man um 
but it's a hard thing. And it's, you know, there have been certain stories that I was the only person who could do them, right? So it wasn't, um, or the only person who had certain pieces of information. And yeah. But it's because of how you do your job that you are that person. You're like so ingrained into the institution. You are so indispensable that you can't say no. But, you know, I, I mean, I am a really bad person at saying no. And I felt like I had to say yes to anything that came along because I thought it was going to dry up and there wouldn't be something that came after it. And I'm not very, and so I was not choosy enough. Does this resonate with you? <laughs> Maggie, <laughs> what I was thinking about when you were saying it actually was that when I first started, the way that I developed this habit of just like living on my phone was um, in the pre-cell phone days when we had beepers, when I was a clerk at the New York Post and I was trying to make myself, to your point, more indispensable, I got a pager so that, you know, if there were, if they needed a reporter, I, I could be on call. And that was how I... Um, made myself valuable. And when editors would, you know, say we need a story right now, I missed, you know, plays that relatives had gotten us tickets for or dinners with my husband or dinners with my children or holidays. And yeah, you don't, I hadn't thought of it quite the way you just said it, but yes, you you don't say no. And some of that in fairness, um, I learned, it isn't just about being a woman. It's also that that's how I learned to do the job from, from several men as well. Um, you know, yep. one of them was my editors, uh, who's now at NBC, uh, a man named Greg Birnbaum, who I worked with at The Post and at Politico. And the other, candidly, was watching my father, who um, was at The New York Times and and worked uh, constantly. Some people say that you're the ultimate insider because they think that your um, currency is in uh, being close to like the Trump White House. Um, and I know you think of yourself as an outsider. Yes, I do. Well, what is an insider then? If you don't do your job that way, what do you think of that as? You don't have to name people, but like what's the, what does that look like? I think an, I think an insider, mm-hmm. in, in my estimation, is somebody who is so afraid of upsetting the subject they cover that they end up sort of not covering anything. Mm. And there are people who do that. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Or who just sort of write up, you know, whether it was whether it's President Trump or whomever, just sort of write up, you know, blah, blah, said blah, blah yeah. today. That's not something that I am particularly comfortable with. I do find the people that I cover interesting and I find the the dynamics of the sort of interpersonal worlds that the people I cover create to be very revealing about who they are. And that help you understand why decisions are made and help you understand why they do things they do. In the case of Donald Trump, there is a reason that almost every conversation that I have with any source in that orbit begins with, he's in a great mood today, <laughs> or he's really angry today. It's like, it's all a mood ring, right? And so, oh, um, and and that's not true of, of every person I've ever covered. Okay, we'll be back after a short message. Okay, so we're back, and I'm talking to Maggie Haberman. Maggie, one thing that you and I have both had to deal with is 
being held accountable for things men do or having that impact our lives. I did not realize this until when I was like looking at um, looking at research for talking to you today that you were going to write a book with Glenn Thrush. That book deal got blown up in the and in, in, as part of Me Too because of uh, Glenn's behavior with uh, some young women colleagues of his. But he kept us advanced, and you had to pay yours back. What? I'm, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to get into all of that just for a variety yeah. of reasons. Okay. Um, oh, okay. There's but, like um, I can imagine there's more to it. It's a. It's. But I think that. Um, but do you feel like? I, let me take it to a different direction. Sure. This is something that I have felt because you know I worked for, you know, Monica Lewis is my intern, and I worked for John mm-hmm. Edwards, and it is mm-hmm. like because men are the ones with the power. We get caught in these, we get caught twixt in between in these like power struggles and then are held to explain or held accountable for what they do. And I have found that to be something very difficult to navigate, something that weighs on my conscience. It's like we get caught in that sort of vice um, because they are the ones with the power, whether they're, you're covering them or working for them. I think that- Is that like um, something you've thought about? So I think without getting into the book situation, and Glenn and I had been friends for a very long time before that all happened. Um, the number of people who were, right. their immediate reaction was, because this was shared with me, coming from some other news outlets, um, what did Maggie know? What's Maggie going to say? And that was really jarring. I think it is unfortunate that that's the immediate what did Maggie thing know? that people go yeah. to. What's Maggie going to say? Um, looking for the woman to um, respond. Um, yeah, I mean that is something a, that's a woman to respond. You know, I found that when I worked, you know, with Edwards, like, well, what's Elizabeth going to say? Right. Or you know that that you right. know, what did you know, Jennifer, or with Monica, or or you know, or with John Edwards, or um, but yeah, it's like holding women accountable for things men do. Um, Maggie, there were some nice questions on Twitter as well, like. I would love to know more about her process, what she takes in that informs her thinking. That was Jen Bluestein. Um, I, no. um, I think that <laughs> it was uh, Jen Bluestein. I did. Well, I, was, I, I think so. I was curious, and I was looking. Um, I so I don't really think about it as a process. I mean, I I have habits, right? So, like, I yeah. I check a bunch of different websites several times a day. There was about fifty people who I check in with. Each day, it's gotten the numbers gotten a little bit smaller each over time. Day, yeah, but I do, but it's a lot. But it's not just by phone; it's by text or by GChat or whatever. Um, oh. But I make contacts. Um, and do you know who this? Like, are you like, are you like? I only got to forty eight today, and I need to do two no, more. No, I don't. No, it, I don't okay. have like a quota. I mean, it's okay. like I just there's just people <laughs> who I people who I try to. And if it's if I've gone a couple of days without checking in with someone, I'll just check in. What's going on? What are you hearing? You know. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. Um, that's really my process. And then, you know, my process is to try to look somewhat down the road. But processes get really thrown to the wind covering this White House because, you know, Trump announces at 11 that he's having a two o'clock press conference that could have been planned for Oops. beforehand, but he doesn't like doing things that way. So the process is just kind of rolling with the punches at this point. Yeah, but it's really smart that you, I mean, that you stay in touch with that many people. Even though I'm not a reporter, that's like a good way to live. I do that too, that's, that's how you, I mean, that's how oh, you, that's why you're good. Um, thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Jen. We're going to let you go now, but I hope people 
take away from this a little, you know, some illumination. I guess part of the problem is that reporting is weirdly opaque. Yes. Yeah, you know, I get that. As I said at the start, it's weird. People don't it's under- so opaque for something that's supposed to be that's about being transparent. It is, but it's also sometimes has to be opaque in order so that we can get information. Which yeah, that's what people, I mean, so people, that's, that's that's why I think it's really right. hard for people to understand. So I think that this was useful because I think it like helped, you I know, maybe so. helps pull me a little, I mean, a little. I enjoyed, I enjoyed, little. I, I enjoyed it, so I appreciate you. But moreover, I just love to talk to you. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jen. Sari, are you there? I'm still here. Okay. What did you think? I thought it was so great. I mean, I really got, I got emotional when she was um, talking about her kids, just how the the, fir- the fourth estate portrayed her. Yeah. Because um, I actually watched that in real time right when it came out. And it was a long time ago, but I, I mean, it feels like a long time ago. It wasn't that long <laughs> ago. But I remember, like, I really revered her as a journalist. And I, you know, I had a picture of what I thought she was like in my head. And then this just kind of was like, there was a lot of dissonance there for me. Yeah. Um, didn't like it, didn't sit well with me. And just to hear her talk about how it was really tough to watch, but also really tough to go through. And I don't know, I I just got a little emotional hearing her talk about it after. Well, she just was like, there was just something in her voice when she was like, this was like a tough few years. You know, yeah. you're just like, ugh. And plus, you know, that was all pre-pandemic too. So, um, but what was useful, what was interesting to me, I mean, obviously like Maggie is somebody that I know well was I hadn't really processed um, I'm not sure that I had thought very, you know, as deeply as I did in this conversation, how she actually does do her job. And, you know, the, the funny thing, the irony is for her, the insider that she clearly has disdain for is the very portrait of what a lot of people think she is. Right. Yeah. 100%. So, um, which is not to say, which I, I don't mean to say that. Uh, Maggie is not self-aware. I think that what I hope is interesting, you know, I hope people take away from that is seeing, you know, just seeing the work that she does in a, like, in a, in a different light. Another th- thing that really struck me, and this was from um, the beginning of the conversation, I believe, and she mentioned it a few times after, was that she kept reminding everyone that this wasn't her first job, that, that <laughs> she didn't just right. all of a sudden come onto the stage as the White House reporter for or Trump's reporter, basically, at the New York Times, that she had a very, um, like, an ascension to that yeah. position. I feel like women are always having to remind people, like, this isn't my first job. I didn't just come here and threaten you. Good like, point, I worked Terry. my way to here. Yeah. Um, I mean, Hillary had to do that. She's like, I've been in this arena for oh. years. <laughs> um, so, and and yeah. this actually reminds me of something in your book as well. It's that we don't have so many, at least, examples of women who have had these decorated careers and are now powerful and whatever. And so we're always assuming that women got there abruptly and through the back door. And because, like, on the coattails of a, of a powerful man. Totally. I didn't, it's funny, I did not, because I've known Maggie for so long, I don't think I appreciated what a phenomenon that actually is. I don't equate her with Trump. Um, I kind of look at it as like a, you know, she got the short end of the stick, she's got to cover Trump. She's got to cover right. Trump. But, yeah. We didn't have the chance to talk to her about this, but the, you know, I've, I've read her say, because, you know, P, 
people, the fact that Trump is willing to speak to her makes people suspicious of her relationship with him. And of course, we're all so suspicious of women. She says, well, you know, I don't think it's about me. It's just the New York Times. If I didn't work for the New York Times, you wouldn't be interested in talking to me. I don't think that's true. I think that's bullshit. I think he is weirdly drawn to Maggie and that like in some ways wants her approval or wants to prove her wrong. I'm not sure what it is, but you know, in the same way that he very much wanted to talk to Bob Woodward, you know, another truly storied journalist. And you could tell from the tone of his voice in talking to Woodward, he wants Woodward's approval, wants to show that, you know, he's a president worthy of, of, of Woodward's time. And I think that, you know, these are like t- really telling things about Trump, but that's the same sort of uh, compunction he has to want to talk to Maggie. Or there's just something about her. (laughs) There's just something about Maggie Haberman that Donald Trump can't seem to quit. I think that's a good place to end. It's a good place to end. All right, I'll talk to you soon, Jen. Thank you to Maggie Haberman. If you like this episode of Just Something About Her, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. Just Something About Her is a podcast from The Recount.